Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us today um, on the Journal of Biophilic Design. T today's podcast is a really interesting one. Um, as some of the listeners know that I, I have a PhD in Greek and Latin and I've got a fascination with the ancient world and obviously nature. Um, and today we're joined by Dr. Patty ba Baker um, to show that scholarship research and understanding of the importance of biophilic design started well over two and a half thousand years ago. The Greeks understood the benefits of it, the Romans did as well, they embraced biophilic design in their centres of healing and also in their homes and gardens. Dr Baker is an archaeologist and academic, uh, she was head of the Department of Classical and Archaeological Studies at the University of Kent, she's currently at the Department of History in Virginia, although she's talking to us from California, <laughs> so truly international. Uh, she gained her PhD in Classics in in 2000 from Newcastle University. She's also published research on medicine and space, bodies, surroundings and borders in antiquity in the Middle Ages, the archaeology of nature in the Greek and Roman world, published by Cambridge University Press, viewing health, Asclepia and the natural settings. She's, there's so much I want to talk to you about, so much, so much, so much, so much. I'm going to have to get you back to talk on about the Asclepia um, in the natural set, uh, setting. So listeners, make sure you bookmark this podcast because it's going to be a good one, this one and um, the two future ones, two future ones I'm going to have her on. So, But anyway, today, uh, Patty, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're here to talk about your research on uh, identifying the connection between Roman perceptions, uh, or conceptions rather, maybe perceptions and conceptions, I don't know, <laughs> of, uh, of pure air and physical mental health in the Pompeian Gardens um, and it's a multi-century approach to ancient medicine so that's me doing a big old waffle <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us Patty. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you Ness it's, it's a fascinating topic and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Lovely thanks so much well um, obviously I've, I've gone on and on and on about um, about what you do <laughs> But could you just tell us a little bit about um, about about what you're you know what you're what you're covering right now, please? Okay, at the moment I'm sort of in a transitional phase where I have one foot in academia and one foot where I'm starting my own business. Um, in academia, I uh, teach Greek and Roman history and Greek and Roman archaeology. My areas of research, as you mentioned, were ancient health, but that sort of moved on to look at health and the environment. And um, then uh, how, especially the, the Greeks, but mainly the Romans, how they looked at um, their understanding of how health was affected by the environment. And there, there's a lot of literature on this. There's some uh, ancient literature by the Hippocratic writer on airs, waters, places. He talks about how environments affect people's body types and health. But one thing I kept noticing when I was reading this is nobody was explaining how exactly um, the natural world was affecting people's humoral system or, or how they understood their health. And um, I did find one or two quotes that just said it's all through sensory experiences. So basically by being in a healthy environment, you experience it through your senses and that affects your health. So that got me interested and I started looking at, well, what did they think was a healthy space? And that was, um, so looking at gardens and, and other descriptions of healthy spaces. So that's one area of my research and then as I said I have another foot that's outside academia and I'm very curious about how the uh, Romans made their floral crowns and designs so I'm um, I have a I'm developing a small business called Pax in Natura or, or Peace in Nature in Latin and I'm looking at 
uh, historically inspired uh, floral arrangements that are environmentally friendly. So, and that goes, that's more for the general public. So one foot in academia and one foot in outside. So it's very nice. Well, that's, that's really great. We, we spoke about this just, just before we, you came on air. So, um, I, and yeah, we, I'm gonna have to get you back on and maybe we could do like a live demonstration or something. I'd that'd be really that. cool. Yes. That'd be really, yes. really cool. So that's yeah. that's a thing. That's a date in the diary. Okay, great. <laughs> um, can I ask you first of all, like why the ancient world? What was the fascination for you? Um, I think it started when I was quite really young, actually. I was um, eight and um, I remember just digging in my parents' back garden and, this wasn't the ancient world in particular, but um, it was, I lived, grew up outside Philadelphia and just up the street from us, there was a battleground for where they had part of the American Revolution. And um, my parents lived on this main street that had been there since the 18th century. And when we were digging the garden, we used to find artifacts. So that got me interested in physical history, I guess you could say. I didn't know what archaeology was at the time, but you know, I was just like, ooh, old stuff. <laughs> and then um, this is really cool. So I liked just history and material culture from a very young age. But then when I was about 10, I heard about Pompeii and started seeing books on Pompeii. And I was fascinated because it, it was about the people in the daily life and you could see how they actually lived. And that's what really attracted me to the ancient world was just seeing how people in Pompeii had lived. It came alive for me. And, and then I started studying Latin in high school. So it all just took off from there, but it was a book on Pompeii and, and finding artifacts as a child. So well, that's, that's really great. Cause obviously the, your, this research that we're gonna talk about is about the Pompeian gardens, the gardens in Pompeii which for people who are listening, most people probably know, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place in, in Italy near Vesuvius. And obviously when Vesuvius erupted in 79, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, my, my brain is actually sort of working. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, obviously it, it sort of, you know, it covered the, and preserved the, the city, um, all the archeology span and, um, and, and the gardens as well, which is, which is really unique. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about that. So um, why was nature so important in the ancient world, do you think? Oh, oh, it's, that's a huge question. We could go on for yes. hours about it. <laughs> but I think I was, um, I think one of the main things was, if we go back to the philosophy, the pre-Socratic philosophers, so these are philosophers just before um, Socrates, so um, it's just early fifth century BC, sort of as a context for that. And what these philosophers are trying to do is they're trying to figure out what the world is made of. You know, they're just trying to figure out how how is the world made. Um, and they came up with this theory ultimately um, by Empedocles, who was this pre-Socratic philosopher who lived in the this century, we have his fragments. And he talks about these theories of earth, air, fire, and water. So everything's made of four elements. And this idea is just carried through um, history for a long, long period. I mean, you see it in the early modern period as well, these, these four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, everything they describe in the cosmos was made of that. So that's people, you know, the stones, the trees, whatever you see around you, the, the stars, it's all some form of earth, air, fire, and water. And because I think because we're all made of this, humans as well as animals and plants, then in a way they're, they're sort of seeing themselves as part of nature. So to, how do you balance yourself as part of, rather than being separate from, the important thing is they're actually part of it. They're made from the same materials. 
even though the, the materials may have a different balance, you know, a stone will be more solids as opposed to the sun, which is fire or, or something like that. So I think that's really part of why nature was important. You're part of it. And then um, another thing they recognize, not only is it practical, I mean, you get your food from it, you need to drink, you know, the, the things to survive, but also what I argue is that your health is very much affected by where you are in nature, what kind of environment you're in, and um, you know, how do you keep yourself balanced within that, that frame? So I mentioned um, the work Airs, Waters, Places, and the writer of that, that, it was about a fifth century work, fifth century BC, the writer that talks about um, how people living in different climatic regions have different body types. So he says the Scythians, for example, a group of people who live in now, what's around the Black Sea, what's the Ukraine, that sort of area. He says it's it's cold, it's damp, so they're kind of they're they're sort of pale and flabby, and they're like the climate itself. So he he really relates he or she, really relates um, the people to their environment. So I think they they see this connection very much between body type, health, and nature. So that's, I mean, you could argue it in so many different ways, but to me, that's what I think is most fascinating. So really, really cool. Um... And the research paper you sent me identifying the connection between uh, Roman conceptions of pure air and physical and mental health um, in Pompeian gardens um, is really fascinating. I mean, it really is. I, and I said, I think I said to you, I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep, but came downstairs and read it. And I was just ready, like cover to cover, because I was just fascinated. It, you write really well. It, it sort of drew me in. Um, I mean, and I think I was really fascinated because as you just, you sort of mentioned the different elements, but you discussed the sort of the multi-sensory approach to ancient medicine. And obviously with biophilic design, we're always talking about the senses, sound, smell, you know, taste, um, the, the air around you, the, the feel on your skin, um, you know, the, the air you breathe in. It's all these different elements are so important in biophilic design. And obviously these are things that the Romans were discussing and understood and, and, and in their concept of, of ancient garden design, if you want. Um, I mean, can you sort of give us a top line really on what you were looking to explore in that paper, really? Um, the paper really asks a couple of things. Uh, basically, the way it started was I kept coming across these quotes from Roman writers, Pliny the Younger, for example, who lived in the late first century AD. He was a lawyer and um, he was very, he came from a very wealthy family. So he, but he keeps talking about how he needed to escape the city of Rome. It wasn't healthy for him. And um, he said, so he would go out to his villas and he had villas in the mountains, two in Lake Como, <laughs> you know, as you do. <laughs> and then one um, just on the coast, just outside of Rome. And in there he keeps saying, I need to go for the pure air. And then I found other writers talking about pure air. And I was saying, well, what do they mean by pure air and how did they identify it? So that was just the first thing. First of all, what was it and how did I identify it? Just saying it's pure air, well, okay, but what do they think is pure air? And then the second was then how was it healthy? And I, I sort of mentioned this before through the sensory experiences. So the paper looks at how they define pure air and then how they actually saw it working and, and made them healthy. So that, that's the tagline for the, the paper. Was there a following on from that then? <laughs> Can you sort of distill all your, all your years of, of like research <laughs> and, and sort of um, and explain um, what you've come to discover that they meant as the meaning of like pure and clear air? Okay, so basically, 
the way I think they meant it was the way they identified it was actually through their senses. So through vision, pure air was clear air and the way they would identify clear air was through color. So green was a very important color. There's a lot of greenery um, that I'll explain how it works in the senses in a minute, but I'll just explain how they identified it first. So the color green, which was very good, it was a healthy color. So if you see a lot of green, that was sort of an idea that air was pure. Then clear or sometimes white air, you know, so if you see bright sunlight or there's not a lot of smoke around, so, so clear air like that would be like one of the colors. And then sometimes blue, different shades of blue. So, a, you know, clear blue sky is a healthy blue, but if you're getting a stormy blue sky, that's a bit different, that's, that's not so healthy. So clear blue, clear bluish seawater or clear water. So what you see, the colors and then, um, also movement, you know, if air is moving, slight breezes, then it's healthy. You don't want it still and stagnant. And then through scent, a good scent is actually no scent, you know, very, very mild scents. And actually you said I was in California we drove over yesterday and we went through the Sierra Nevadas and of course got out to take photos. And the scent, it was amazing. You're just away from everything. You can just smell the trees and the pine and the cypress. And you just think, I want to bottle this up, <laughs> you know. So that was sort of what they meant by, you know, this amazing mountain scents or when you're by the sea, but you, it's not an oppressive smell of the sea. It's just a, a mild scent of salty air. You know, the, these are, are healthy scents and that's how they would identify pure air. So they knew if they were in those surroundings, the air was good for them and it was healthy. And then how it affects their health is, as I mentioned, through their senses. And we kind of have to ask, well, how did they understand their senses to work? And so this is where you go back to the philosophy. And there are many different theories about how the senses work. But one of the main one is, there are two basic ones. One's called intromission. And intromission is where you actually take it into your body. So they're a group of philosophers called atomists. They believe in tiny little atom type particles, which are invisible. Um, but if you're looking at something like at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at a water bottle, for example, the way the atomists would describe me as seeing this, this water bottle is that the atoms would slowly, they would just, basically the atoms come off of it and they hold their shape and they go directly into your eyes and, that if, and then that goes to your brain or something and you identify it. With sound, sound atoms can go into your ear. So it goes directly into you and smell up your nose, you know, your nose taste is in the, the, the tongue. Um, not so sure how actual touch works, but you know, they're the ones I, they mainly say, but you're bringing this stuff into your body, actually bringing it into you. So if you smell something pleasant, it goes into you and then it affects your humoral balance. So they believe you had four humors in your body, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And if you were healthy, you had a nice balance of these. So bringing something pleasant into your body through smell or sound would help balance the humors and make you healthy. So it's actually bringing that stuff into you. And then I mentioned the other theory of extramission. It's a platonic theory. Basically, it's the same idea, but for, for vision in particularly, Apparently you shoot some kind of fire outside your eye. I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know entirely what they meant, what he meant or they meant, but you shoot this fire outside your eye. It mixes with sunlight. You focus on 
this water bottle again, and then that, that fire goes back into your eye. So both of them basically mean you're bringing this, whatever you're seeing, smelling, hearing, or tasting, it's going directly into you. Yeah. And that's how it affects yeah. your body, so. Okay, I was gonna say as well, it's a direct connection, isn't it? It's almost like there's a sort of a, a, a tactile, a, a sort of a, um, a, a direct communication between your environment and you. Yes, so that, yeah. Yeah, so you're directly part of it, you know, it's coming in and out, you know, yeah. you're, yeah, so. They're all sort of part of the universal thing. I remember doing Lucretius, gosh, that was, you was mentioning about that. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. the atoms. Yeah, we had yeah. lots of discussions with that. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> so <laughs> Robert Island, if you're listening, I do remember it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the sort of in the contrast with like the sort of the clean air, you mentioned the fetid air and the miasmas. Um, and these sort of unhealthy environments. I mean, maybe just in kind of in terms of contract, contrast, uh, could you explain maybe what they were like? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is these are the fun bits because they talk a lot more about them. You know, they'll just say, oh, pure air. But when you hear about the fetid air, so basically um, some unhealthy environments were marshy places. So marshes, slow moving rivers, anything where the water was sort of stagnant, they often talk about letting off bad atoms as well, or mists. Um, and then if you're breathing those in or seeing them, that's not healthy for you. They'll smell bad. Um, so anything with very strong scents. Um, so marshes are, they're always talking about don't go near marshes. The military writers say don't build a fort near marshes. That's Vegetius. Um, Vitruvius talks about it in his book on architecture. So what's interesting is Vitruvius writes in the first century, late first BC, early first AD, somewhere within that period. Um, and he talks about building structures and healthy spaces away from the marshes. Um, and Vegetius is writing about 400 years later on military things, says the same exact thing. So these ideas carry on in, in different contexts. So the marshes, toilets, uh, you know, any sewer smells, they're, they're bad. Um, so they, they try to get those out of the cities when they could or, but it, usually it's just beyond the city walls. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, but anyway, you just try to avoid places like that. Also, there's some sort of theories that certain types of workshops in Pompeii where fullers worked, so they're working with urine and feces sometimes. Um, they were sort of concentrated in one area, so you keep the foul smells in one area. So there, there are some other things. Kitchen smells, smoky, too much smoke. Um, I think it's plenty. It's one of the writers talks about leaving the city um, again because this, it's so smoky in Rome because people are cooking and you know so so he has to get away from that as well. So so there's some bad smells um, and again where there's not a lot of air movement where it's stagnant or if it's too hot and sunny that's not a good balance you always want things in balance and if it's too cold and wet that's not good so you have to constantly um trying to find that nice temperate climate where you know it might be might be um uh i don't know uh cold and smelly but then you can and change your environment and make it warm and you know pleasant and yeah yeah, yeah. I, I find it really interesting um obviously because i've interviewed um contemporary workplace um, designers, interior designers and architects. And 
you know, I mean, we, we, we always talk about air quality, actually, and sort of opening windows and creating this fresh air and, and how obviously plants are really good. It's all sort of one of the key aspects, obviously, of biofood design, bringing plants in. One of the key things, obviously, cleaning air. Um, but I mean, I just, I'm just right. I'm just, just why I'm finding this incredibly fascinating because this is obviously what the Romans were talking about, you know, thousand, you know, two, two, two thousand years ago, where we are now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so two thousand years ago, and and they were, they, and it's and it's smell, isn't it? They were picking up on the fact that it was smell. I mean, they, they talk about what they don't want, basically. You know, yeah. they don't want this sort of stagnant, this stagnation, this stagnant sort of thing. I mean, when we're in an office, we get we get stuck in a place and it's all stagnant air. We don't realise, but actually, you know, there was a recognition that it's not good for you, you know, and it's, that was, it was like 2,000 years ago. I'm going to keep saying that. That was 2,000 years ago, <laughs> you know. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm really pleased you come on because anybody who's listening to this who are in like workplace consultants, architects, interior designers, town planners, um, you know, anybody who's even like do, doing DIY in their home, open the windows. <laughs> just... <laughs> You know, create create some fresh air. Don't don't use crappy plate paint and, and VOC stuff and, and things. But um, anyway, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on. <laughs> um, I mean, it's there's so much. The more you look, the more you find. I mean, it, in the ancient world, it's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Whether just little passing sentences in the literature, or you know, just when you mentioned opening windows, I thought of another comment and again um oh i forget the writer offhand but um he just says oh there's disease in the city so somebody came in and that we've got it. and they open the windows to let out the fetid air you know this diseased air in houses so you know <laughs> well yeah there you go i mean you know there was there's a whole reason why we studied the ancient world you know at school and stuff years ago and now we're not doing it so what's that about anyway <laughs> let's not go on to politics <laughs> um Anyway, so so I mean, obviously, why was pure air important to them? I mean, obviously, respiration and and sort of obviously air quality and stuff. You know, um, I mean, but in what way did they make that connection between sort of pure air and health? Okay. So as I mentioned with the senses, that's how they're bringing uh, yeah. in the body. So and then as I said, their bodies they believe are made of those four elements: yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood, and in order for you to be healthy, technically, you should have a good balance, but they're always in flux. And so by being, so if you're, um, let's just make this up. If you're being, if you're a little sleepy and lethargic, then they might say, go and get some exercise to, to, to balance yourself out. Or um, if you're suffering from an illness, for example, say you have a high fever and you're very dry, they would say, then you want something that cools you off and that's moist. So they would recommend cool, moist drinks, cool, moist foods like cucumbers or something or moist fruits. And then they might also say, go down to the baths as well and, you know, take a bath that'll moisten your body. Um, and then it's always treating by opposites. Um, but then they also write a lot about maintaining your health. So there are a lot of books on regimen, which include diet, exercise, um, you know, diet, exercise, as well as, you know, putting yourself in the right environment. It also includes your education level as well, you know, get educated. So it's all about body and mind. And, but getting yourself in the right environment is also very important. And so that's why we may see people have gardens in their houses, or if they couldn't have gardens, they're public gardens built in, in Roman cities, at least in the Mediterranean that we're aware of. And then you've, there's more work being done on northern um, regions of the empire. So we do have evidence for some gardens as well. So the idea travels. Um, 
but get away, you know, if you're in a bad environment, you can just get out, go to the, going to the baths was healthy, which you as a classicist will know that, you know, they're always talking about going to the baths, but also around these large public baths were gardens. And, and I'm working on a paper with a friend of mine on how this idea carries over into the Renaissance. Oh, really? He works on, his name is Dr. Giacomo Savani, and he works on, um, Roman baths and and I do the gardens. We found that this this there was this link and it carries on into the 16th 17th century. So, yeah. wow. really yeah. really interesting, isn't it? It's just you know, yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, sort of talking about gardens, maybe we can just talk, talk about now about why you know what what were the sort of typical features of of a garden, a Pompeian garden? You know, okay. what, what what elements were important to them? Okay, first of all, you have to think about most houses have some kind of green space in Pompeii. Uh, let's just talk about Pompeii and Herculaneum first and then and then I'll come back and talk about Rome and Ostia. But um, basically what you do is you find and they're all houses are different sizes, but even small houses have some kind of green space. But usually the typical garden is at the back of the house. So you're away from the front, which is on the street, and it's the furthest away from the street and the noise and the, the smells of the street because Pompeian and Herculean houses in Pompeii and Herculaneum were right up against the street for the most part, you know, this front door, tiny step street. So it's everything is very public and loud at the front. So the gardens are at the back, so you have the quiet. And then when you go into the gardens, they're usually um, surrounded by uh, so, you know, there's a covered walkway, sometimes depending on the size, all the way around on four sides or just one or two areas, but usually there's a covered space. So you can sit in the shade when it's too hot. So again, getting that balance right. So usually a shaded space to sit. Um, and then in the garden itself, you usually have flower beds and then and there's a mix um, of different types of plants and trees. So for example, they had some citron trees, cypress, olive vines, uh, olive trees, sorry, and then um, grape vines, walnut trees, hazelnuts. So lots of different trees that you can eat and they provide shade. Um, then there's different types of foods that we found evidence for. So chickpeas, fava beans, lentils, beetroot, cucumbers, leeks, cabbage, garlic, onion, and then beautifully scented bushes like rosemary, oleander, myrtle, and um, laurel trees. So there's evidence for these from charred fruit remains, charred roots, um, after Pompeii was covered with volcanic ash, and then also from the pollen samples from the soil. So I've just mentioned a few things, but they found lots of, so they're there are flowers, trees, bushes, all sorts of greenery in them. And then you also have a water element. Usually there's some type of fountain. These can be very elaborate, you know, shooting um, fountains with, you know, um, animals with, I think there's one of a frog where it has a fountain, you know, water shooting out of it. Or sometimes you have waterfalls. They're in the really elaborate gardens, but then you just have small ones, which, have uh, look like bird fountains and there's a little um, water shooting out. Uh, sorry, they look like bird baths with water shooting out of yeah. the, um, the garden. So you had the water features, covered walkways, plants, um, and, and then sometimes you get little religious objects. I didn't, didn't mention this really in the paper, but there's usually an altar or something for the family to worship in. Sometimes you get tables. So people were eating outside, you know, evidence for the dining couches. And um, and then also sometimes you get 
murals on people's walls, fresco paintings and mosaics. So they're highly decorated and, but as I said, very, um, but they do have them even in the smallest houses. Sometimes you have houses that don't actually have garden space, but they may have a little light well, and you'll see evidence of painting to make it look like there was a garden. And then a few pots that show they have plants and maybe a little water feature. So they're trying to bring this into their homes. Yeah, as I said, you know, even in sort of cities or Ostia or, you know, or, or Rome, you have yeah. like sort of mock, you know, mock uh, virtual walls, if you want, as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then in big cities where if people didn't have, couldn't have, if they were living in like apartment blocks, basically, they could go to public gardens, um, which were around theaters, baths. So there was always, there at least from the evidence we have, it looks like this was very common, you know, to try to get that green space somewhere in the city so people could have it if they couldn't have their own garden. So. I mean, they recognised the fact that it was important for the citizens, for their health, yeah. their well-being, yeah. and also yeah. to keep them happy. Because obviously we've got the whole bread and circuses malarkey, haven't we, you know? But yeah. it was, you, know, you get happy, let's say happy wife, happy life. I think it's, you know, happy citizens, happy city. Yeah. <laughs> I drank yeah. them yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like a utopia because it wasn't, but because yeah. it's so, oh, it must have been so wonderful. But but they did, there is uh, evidence that they were trying and, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just sort of like, you know, in sort of terms of town planning, there was a, there was an, uh, like you say, there was an ambition to, to yes. create these um, garden, these sort of public spaces for people as well. So um, I'm interested in the wall paintings. And um, I, I mean, as listeners will know as well, that, I mean, the Journal of Bifit Design, we're actually published as well. And we, we actually create large scale virtual walls. So we do like, you know, we, we use, we print on acoustic panels, we do sort of like chemically cleaned you know walls and all that kind of stuff but we create we know the benefit of virtual nature walls particularly where i'm where I'm, the space i work in is healthcare and workplaces and homes as well but you know to be to be able if you're in like a just a place in you know, a, a closed environment like they were in the ancient world say for instance in the city and you can't you don't have views you've got these these sort of virtual natures and and um and in your paper you you discuss some of them um like you mentioned the waterfalls and the you know the paintings that are in there you know you've got sort of um images of, of, of the ancient, of the, of the, of the natural world. Uh, I mean, can you sort of um, maybe explain a little bit, maybe describe some of the images or the colorways that are used in there? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm fascinated. So if you don't mind. Okay, great. I think one of the most famous wall paintings is of Livia's villa at Prima Porta. Prima Porta was a villa, um, it means first gate in, in Rome. And it was uh, supposedly owned by the Empress Livia. She's the first Roman Empress and she was married to Augustus. So, and he reigned from 31 BC to AD 14. So within that region, but she, in this villa that's identified as hers, there's this basement room and all four sides are painted with the most lush, beautiful garden fresco painting. And you can see it in, in Rome and it's, you walk into the museum room and it's just, it's mind blowing and breathtaking at the same time, the detail. But what you have, and they're all quite similar, all, and there are a lot of different garden paintings, but just, just using this one. You sort of have a grassy area at the front, and then there's a fence. They have these little low fences that sort of designates the wild from the area you're in, and you can look out onto nature. And then, um, and then you have various types of trees. So there's pomegranate, a citron, I've, 
uh, I think there's um, a strawberry tree and, and then they have pine trees and cypress trees all just and they're all in bloom at the same time so it, it's you know the idea is it's just fecundity everywhere and you know even though they may bloom and develop uh, develop at different stages of the year they're all seen in their ripest stages at the same time in this image and then what you get also are flower, all different types of flowers um, lower down, and they're all, you know, blooming at the same time as well. And there's amazing bird life. You always see bird life in these uh, images of Roman garden paintings, from the smallest to the largest. And they talk about pleasant sounds as well, you know, and especially the nightingale. And you often see pictures of nightingale, but they're beautiful. I mean, they're very accurate, detailed. Um, paintings of birds, flowers, trees, and then the woman who really works on um, Roman gardens, uh, Catherine Gleason, who's at, at um, Cornell, she she noticed by looking at it very closely, can also see that these are very carefully um, trimmed. You know, they're not let to grow wild, although it looks wild when you look at it. She says, if you look, you can see all the cut marks, all the pruning marks. So they're taking a lot of care to develop these gardens and it actually shows up in their paintings. Um, another and a lot of paintings also show these little bird bath type fountains. So you'll have what looks like a modern bird bath, you know, something, a little uh, bowl on a pedestal. And there's usually a little fountain shooting up out of that. And they usually have birds sitting on them and the colors they use for the backgrounds tend to be bluey greens so for the sky or you get yellows, which I think is supposed to represent sunlight and bright light. And then, you know, lots of lush greens for the, the trees and then bright colors for the flowers. So you get reds, purples, whites, yellows. It's, they're just amazing. Um, real, real flamboyance of, of color and like you say fecundity, you know, this sort of real, you know, lush life. Mm -hmm abundance um make you feel good make you feel happy make you feel like yeah you're you're, you're surrounded by life living things back to biophilia <laughs> you know um obviously the sort of my whole you, you mentioned and you touched on before and and um and i i mean i could i could talk to you for ages i mean you know we said you know it's definitely when you come over to the uk or if i come over to america drinks 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 yeah, chat definitely yeah <laughs> You can tell we have a lot in common with this. So. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, I mean, how did the ancient world see uh, sort of the, the whole multi-sensory approach um, sort of benefiting the health of people? I mean, you, you have sort of touched on it about sort of balance and, and stuff. Um, I mean, sort of waterfalls and scents and stuff. I mean, you know, is, is there sort of I mean, any sort of medical treaties or is there, any, is there any other kind of evidence that you could maybe um, just touch I on? Think um, just saying, well, the medical treaties I've mentioned where they do talk about this, but we see it in poetry as well. Um, there's Roman poetess Horace, who's you know talks about lying by you know a brook and listening to the sound of the water gurgling and um, and the birds singing, and they paint the poem. The poets paint these beautiful images of what it's like. You can imagine yourself just lying there, listening to the breeze and the, the wind blowing through the trees and the birds singing and the bees buzzing. And they, they mention this, Virgil and his Georgics talks about this a lot. Um, then you get the agricultural works by uh, people like Columella and Cato um, and um, Barrow who, who talk, they talk about, you know, some of it's very practical. They say, you know, if you're going to have buy farmland, make sure it's in a healthy area, you need the sun, you need water. But then they, they sort of also say that this is good for you as well. Um, yeah. and 
So with the way they describe a healthy landscape for farming is much like uh, Greek and Roman writers talk about finding a healthy landscape for your body so that you can see these interconnections that way. So the agronomist poems, I'm sure if I looked at plays or something, you'd probably see more And the historical writers, Pliny the Younger I men mentioned, he's just writing letters to his friends and he's telling us, you know, I, I've got to get out of the city. I love the smell of the mountains or, you know, this is what I, and he describes his villa very carefully and, and how he can hear the sea from his Villa Laurentum, um, it's outside Rome. He said, oh, you can hear the waves of the rolling sea. And it's just, so they're all, so that's another, you know, just wide range of literature. Just looking at the paintings, which I described, the mosaics they, they have, again, lots of natural scenery in that, landscape, mosaics, landscape paintings. Um, and then, you know, from an archeological perspective, sometimes people, besides the gardens, which there has been a lot of archeology span on Roman gardens in Pompeii and Herculaneum. You see farming equipment just on farms and things like that. So we know that people are getting out. I mean, some of it's practical, they need to eat. So obviously they're growing food and, and things like that. But another thing um, I just thought of was they um, also in their religion, when you look at, I mentioned early on how the, um, pre-Socratic philosophers were looking uh, to try and explain the world, you know, in terms of what it's made of, but they also see nature as divine. They never say that nature isn't divine. It's not like they're saying Zeus made it this way or Jupiter made it this way. They just see nature as divine. And they're um, in Greco-Roman religion, they're water nymphs and, you know, these little semi-divine creatures that hang out on trees and you know so everything they see it as is as divine as well so i think just looking at their religion they, there is this sort of respect for nature you don't want to get a water nymph angry you know <laughs> they might do something bad to you or you know so you appease it so i think there's so much more that we can look at yeah touching Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I completely forgot about it. Yeah, because the water nymphs and stuff, isn't it? There's all these different elements, you know, the sort of uh, personification of, of of the elements of, of water and air and, Zephyr, you know, Zephyr, the winds. And, yeah. and actually, by keeping everything, I mean, if we'd have carried on with that, we wouldn't have had global warming, maybe. <laughs> they weren't perfect either. There, there's yeah, a lot well, of Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we can learn that too, you know. Okay. Yeah, we, we take the good things. We take the good things. <laughs> um. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I could, I could talk to you for, for like ages. Um, and, um, but I, I'm going to have to wrap up. But the, the last question that I ask everybody, so people who are listening will know that I asked this sort of crazy magic question. Um, obviously, knowing what you know about the ancient world and sort of obviously the sort of biophilic design in the ancient world, um, I mean, sort of what aspects of a sort of ancient world sort of biophilic design would you, would you like to see in the modern world? Um, I think I would like to see more green spaces because when I lived in the UK, every flat I had, it didn't have a balcony. You know, I always had to go outside and I just thought, I think that to me, that was always the most convining thing. Even if I had a nice flat, there was no balcony. And, um, and I just thought, why not even just a small balcony just to get some greenery around. That's not just in the house, but you have a space that's outside a little bit of space that's your you know green you can grow plants so i think garden spaces for everybody is i mean i know i'm, I'm exaggerating it's idealistic but i just think if we could find 
more green spaces. Bill, as as you, you know this because this is what you do, but you know just the whole idea of bringing the outdoors in and, and finding this nice balance between what's inside, what's outside, finding a quiet space that's pleasant, that's green, that has plants and, and nice sounds. It basically have all four elements, I think is what I'm trying to say. You know, you want your earth, air, fire and water surrounding you and it's nice and natural and doesn't smell bad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's quiet. So yeah, I, I could go on for hours, but um, it's just, I think it's just finding a green space that's healthy. So everybody has a little bit of it, even if it's balconies and it, you're talking about green, you know, biophilia in green spaces today. It would be, I think people would be happier and healthier if they had somewhere they could escape to. <laughs> and, uh... Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.